You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back, my dear friends, to the weekly Parsha Review. This week's Parsha is Parsha Bamidbar, the first portion in the book of Numbers, the first portion in the book of Bamidbar. It is the 34th portion since the beginning of the Torah. There are 159 verses in this week's Parsha, 1,823 words, and 7,393 letters. Now, for those of you who are just joining this podcast, you're wondering why in the world are you mentioning the numbers of letters, words, and verses? And the reason our sages teach us, and we've learned this so many times throughout our classes in the Partial Review podcast, there isn't an extra letter, there isn't an extra word, and there isn't an extra verse in the entire Torah. If it's there, it's there for a reason. Just like in the owner's manual, to your IKEA product, there isn't an extra step that's added. They don't. They don't just give you an extra step. If there is a step number four, put in the pegs. Now I want to skip step number four. Guess what? Your piece of furniture is not going to stand well. It's going to be off balance. Something's not going to go right. Every single step is there for a reason. Every single letter, word. And verse is there for a reason. This is our manual, our manuscript for how to live life. There are no mitzvahs. There are no commandments in this week's parsha. not performative and no prohibitions. This week's parsha is always preceding Shavuot. So this Shabbos is Parsha's Bar Midbar. Next week on Thursday night is going to be Shavuot. So next week on Thursday night is going to be the holiday of Shavuot, and we're going to stay up the whole night of Shavuot, and we're going to dedicate time to talk about this in our short and sweet segments of the Jewish Inspiration Podcast. So this week's Parsha begins with a census. In the second year of the Jewish people's travel in Bamidbar, which is in the desert, Hashem commands Moshe and Aaron to count the men between the ages of 20 and 60, old enough for military service. Each tribe had, had a leader who assisted Moshe and Aaron with the count of their tribe, respectively. Reuven, the assistance of Elitzur ben Shdeur, was 46,500. Shimon, 59,300. Yehuda, 74,600. Yisachar, 54,400. Zevulun, 57,400. Ephraim, 40,500. Menashe, 32,200. Binyamin, 35,400. Dan, the tribe of Dan, 62,700. Asher, 41,500. Gad, 45,650. And Naphtali, 53,400. Since the tribe of Levi is separate, the tribe of Yosef is split into two tribes, Ephraim and Menashe. The total census of the tribes equaled 603,550 men between the ages of 20 and 60 who are of military age. Now, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, were counted differently. Only men ages between 30 and 50 are commanded in the sanctuary service. So all of the work in the Mishkan and the temple were allowed only by people of the age of 30 to 50. The tribe of Levi because they were separate, were counted later. And they were counted from age one month and older. They were only allowed for service in the temple 30 to 50, but they were counted from one month old. 
they are exempt from any military service because of their special duties as religious leaders. They were the scholars, they were those who were learning Torah, they were the teachers, and therefore they were exempt from military service. The total census of the Levites was 22,200 Levites, and as we'll see, an additional 271 firstborn who were counted as part of the Levite count. The Levites are responsible for the transport of the Mishkan and set up when the nation encamps. So every time the nation traveled, they disassembled the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, traveled, and then reassembled the Mishkan, and then they camped. The encampments. The tribe of Israel, each with its own banner, assigned their position within the camp and their order of travel. The camp was arranged with the Mishkan in the middle, surrounded by the tribes of four groups of three. So if you turn over your sheets, and to our friends online, you can look on the description of this broadcast or in the podcast link, and you can find these sheets that we are sharing uh, for the Parsha of Bamidbar. So if you turn over your page, you'll see that in the middle, you have the tabernacle, and in the north, you have Dan Asher Naftali. On the east, you have Yehuda, Yisachar, and Zavulon. In the south, you have God, Reuven, and Shimon. And in the west, you have Binyamin, Menashe, and Ephraim. In the inner circle, you have Gershon, Kahasamarari, who were the Levite families, and Moses and Aaron and their children were on the east side. So it's important for us to know this because the Torah tells it to us. Why does the Torah tell it to us? We'll see shortly. So to the east, you had Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavulon, to the south, Reuven, Shimon, and God, to the west, Ephraim, Menashe, and Binyamin, and to the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. When the nation travels, they march in a similar formation to the way they camped. So they just pack their tents, they pack their bags, their belongings, they stand up, and they travel in the direction they need to go in the same positions that they were in. So they wouldn't be a whole, what we call in Hebrew, balagan, a whole to do with everyone. Where's my this? Where's my that? Where am I going? Where am I supposed to stand? Everyone stayed with their camp. Now, we'll see in a minute that everyone had their own personal flag. They had their own identity. We'll see what that means shortly. When the nation travels, they march in a similar fashion. The Levite families camped in the inner circle, like we showed in the diagram on the other side, around the Mishkan in three groups. Kahas family camped in the south, and they carried the vessels of the Mishkan, which is the ark, the table, the menorah, the altars. The Gershon family camped in the west and carried the curtains and the roof coverings. The Merari family camped in the north and carried the boards, the pillars, the bolts, and the sockets. And Moshe and Aaron and family camped in front of the Mishkan's entranceway, which was in the east. Due to their utmost sanctity, only Aaron and his sons were permitted to cover the vessels of the Mishkan. Once covered, the Kahas family carried those vessels. Then the end of this week's portion, we have the transfer of power that after the sin of the golden calf, the firstborn males lost their privilege of serving in the Mishkan. A formal transfer is made between the firstborn and the Levites who will now do the service in the temple. The remaining 273 firstborn are instructed to redeem themselves from Aaron the Kohen for five silver shekels. 
So, my dear friends, this concludes the summary of this week's parsha. But now we're going to focus a little bit on the important lessons that we can derive and extract from this week's portion. So, first is why does Bamidbar always precede the holiday of Shavuot? And our sages tell us to teach us humility. The key ingredient for a Jew to receive the Torah and for the Torah to become part of his life is to have humility. If a person doesn't have the virtue of of humility, if they're not humble, they cannot receive the Torah. Why does the Midbar, why does the desert resemble humility? Because the, it says the Midbar, the desert, is Shahakol Dashinba. Everyone stampedes, everyone stands on the desert. It's a place that's low. It's a place that's always, so to speak, trampled on. We have to realize that the virtue of the Jewish people is that we're going to be lowered by the nations of the world. We're going to be trampled upon by the nations of the world. That is part of our virtue. When the Jewish people, it's like whack-a-mole, when the Jewish people try to step up high, they get slammed by the nations. Don't get too haughty. Don't get too arrogant. And don't get too showy. Our sages teach us that the Jewish people are not supposed to be driving around in the Bentleys and the Rolls Royce. That's not for us. We're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be poking the eyes of our nation, of the nations around us. We're not supposed to be showing them how we live extravagant lifestyles. We're supposed to show them what it means to be humble. We're supposed to show them what it means to be submissive to the Almighty. That is the virtue of the Jewish people. We are humble people. And that is why the Torah is always given after the portion of Bamidbar to remind us, be humble if you want to receive the Torah, if you want the Torah to be part of your life, if you want it to be special for you, you need to have this ingredient of humility. So we see that there's a special honor accorded to the spiritual leaders and those who are holy. And, you know, perhaps in our government, this is why we have special deferments for clergy and students of divinity, those who are in rabbinic school. By the way, in the state of Israel, this is a big struggle. Why should the yeshiva students not go to the army? We see this in the Torah. By the way, we see this in the U.S. government. When I was 18 years old, I had to sign a special document which was sent into the U.S. Army, and that gave me a deferment from enlisting to the Army. Although we don't have an Army enlistment, we don't have a draft, but still, as a member of clergy, as a student of divinity, we are given an exemption. It's not a unique thing that only in Israel the rabbis are let off or the oh, they're learning in yeshiva. This is something which goes back 3,300 years where God says those who are learning Torah, those who are studying the Torah, those who are teaching Torah are exempt from serving in the military. Who was that? By the way, it wasn't only the Jewish people. In Egypt, the Pharaoh, he gave the whole land of Ramses, right? He says, that is for the scholars. That is for the teachers. And that was the tribe of Levi. They were never subject to slavery because they were the scholars. They were the ones who were the teachers who were learning Torah. So if this is something that Pharaoh appreciated, I think it's fair enough to say 
that our Israeli government can acknowledge as well. So I think it's just an important point for us to remember. It's not a made-up thing of the last 75 years of the state of Israel. In fact, Ben-Gurion, when he was establishing the state, went and sat with Chazonish, who was the leading Torah scholar of the generation. Chazonish said, number one, don't draft the females. And that exemption is clear. Second is don't, don't draft those who are studying Torah because that is the pillar of the Jewish people. Yes, it's important to have tanks. Yes, yes it's important to have the planes and to have a, a, a robust Navy and, and, and Air Force and you know artillery uh, units and Iron Dome units. and That's very important. But those who are studying Torah are just as important, if not even more important. It's very interesting that we know that of the children of the tribe of Levi, you had Gershon, Kahas, and Merari. And we see that Kahas is counted first. He was second, but he was counted first. If you see the, the list that we gave over here of the responsibilities of each of the Levite tribes, of Levite families, Kahas was given first. Our sages tell us, because Moshe and Aaron came from that family, they take precedence because there is a special honor that is accorded to those who are the Torah scholars, just like we mentioned previously. Moshe and Aaron were the leaders, and because they were the leaders, it's critically important that they be honored first. We always honor our Torah scholars first. If you see, the halacha tells us that when a Torah scholar walks into a room, everyone needs to stand up. Why? Because we accord special honor for Torah scholars. Now, it's not only Torah scholars, it's anyone who's wise. The Rambam teaches us that anyone who is over the age of 70, we stand up for them. Why? Because they have wisdom. Someone who's around on this earth for 70 years, they have plenty of experience in life. And therefore, because we respect and honor wisdom, we stand up for those who are wise. And Rambam says, even if they're non-Jews, we accord honor to them. The total number of Jews was around 3 million. If you count the 603,000 males between the age of 20 and 60, you can duplicate that for the women. You count the children, which they had many more children than just one or two because it says that they had shisha bikarasachas. They had six in each pregnancy. You see the you do the math. You're talking about millions and millions of people. So where are we today? Look at us today. Why do we only have 15 million Jews in the world? I mean, by just simple arithmetic, we should be in the billions of Jews, but we're not. And throughout history, we have had persecution, and we have had extermination, and we have had Holocaust, and we have had uh, expulsions, and we have had pogroms. What's going on? Why has our nation been persecuted so much? So we have to understand the first thing is that the Jewish people are not meant to be the largest in numbers. We're not meant to be the largest in numbers. We're meant to be the most precious. Diamonds aren't all over the place. If there were diamonds everywhere, they wouldn't be worth anything. We're the diamonds. 
our sages teach us that what the Torah says to Abraham, where Hashem says to Abraham, look, you'll be like the stars. And then there's another time it says you'll be like the sand at the sea. Which one are we? Are we like the stars or are we like the sand? Say, just tell us when we're doing the right thing, the nations will look up at us like they look up at the stars. But when, heaven forbid, we are not following the ordinance of Hashem, they will trample on us like the sand at the sea. But we're not here to be numerous. We're here to count that every single one is their own unique, special star. And that's what each and every one of us are. We're each a unique and special star, which is why it's very important that when it says, it says that each tribe had their own flag. Each tribe had their own responsibility. They had their own character. So there are a couple of pieces here that are important for us to learn from. Number one, it's okay to have your own identity. It's okay to be unique. Hashem created you unique. He wants you to be different. He doesn't want you to just go with the flow. In fact, in the laws of kosher, we mentioned back in Parsha Shemini in Leviticus 11, we talked about the kosher fowl. How do we know, uh, typically, a kosher animal, how do we know if it's kosher or not, if it has any blemishes, if it has a broken leg? They would keep it around for four days, and they would examine during those four days if it was walking properly, if it was acting the way it should act, like a normal animal. Then after they slaughtered the animal, they would check internally that it didn't have any internal blemishes. But how would they know about fowl? They'd take a duck. How would they know if the duck was kosher? So what they would do is they would take the duck and they would put it upstream. And if it could swim against the stream, it was kosher. I say, just tell us, do you hear what that, what that teaching is? Do you hear what that lesson is? You want to know what a kosher Jew is? See if they can swim upstream if they can go against the current, where the whole world is doing this, oh, everyone is doing this, I have to do it as well. Well, if it's against my morals, against the values that the Torah tells us, can we go against the current? That is the determination of our kosherness as individual people. It is okay for us to have separate flags. There were 12 different tribes, and each one had its own unique identity. Each one had its own unique identity, and that's our specialty. We don't have to all be the same. We don't have to all be the same. So you may wonder, what distinguished them? They didn't have different rules in the Torah. They had different ways in which they observed those rules. I've been asked numerous times, oh, Rabbi, there are about a thousand different Hasidic dynasties I mean, can't we just have one? Why don't we just be one people, one nation, one soul, like we were when we received the Torah, one nation, one soul? That didn't mean they didn't have different identities. That means that there was no discord. That means that there was peace and harmony. There was love. There was friendship. It doesn't mean we all thought the same way or had the same perspective on God. Everyone has their own uniqueness. However, Everyone observed the same Torah. Is a very important distinction between what today has become different sects and movements where we're changing the Torah. And we have to be very, very cautious. We cannot change the rules of the Torah. And if you look, 
the different Hasidic movements, when you look at Satmar, which is the largest, Bells, Munkach, I can name you a thousand different Hasidic dynasties. They all keep the same Torah, the same mitzvahs. They don't change Shabbos. They don't change tefillin. They don't change tzitzis. They don't change the laws of anything. What do they change? This one has payas like this, and this one has payas like that, and this one has payas like this, and this one has this one has white socks, this one has black socks, but they all abide by the same exact rules of praying three times a day. It's amazing that if you walk into any Torah observant synagogue, you will have north of 75% participation every single day in prayers, three times a day. North of 75%. I wish every synagogue in the world had 75% on Yom Kippur. You have north of 75% every single day of the week. And on Shabbos, it's, I would say, 99% participation. Because it's not a custom. It's not a luxury uh, of like, if I can and if it works out. This is part of our life. You go to New York and you will see shuls that have minion after minion after minion after minion from the earliest time that you can pray in the morning all the way till late middle of the night. Morning, afternoon, and evening. Shachris bin Chamarev. It's the most remarkable thing. And you know what? From every shape and size and from every Hasidic dynasty and even those who are not Hasidic, we can all dress differently. We can all even eat differently because of our customs, but we all abide by the same Torah. And that's very, very crucial and important that even though they had their own flags, that didn't mean that they were able to change the rules. We're not allowed to change the rules because these are the rules that Hashem gives us all. And I think, again, it's so vital and so important for us to each individual recognize our own uniqueness we're all given special talents as we as we saw back in the portions of teruma tetzavek kisisa vayakov the last four portions uh last five portions of the book of exodus we see that there were special orders given by the almighty of the construction and the design of the tabernacle who was it by two individuals bitzalel and Ahaliyav. Why? Why these two individuals? They were given a unique gift. They were given a special talent that was unique to them. God doesn't want us to hide in the shadows and not be special. You were given special talents. You're given talent to sing, sing. You're given talents to bake the bread, bake the bread. Don't say, oh, no, I'm just going to be like everybody else. No, no, no. You're given talents. Use those talents. We're all unique. And that's special. Don't hide that uniqueness. I think as parents, our number one responsibility to our children is to make their uniqueness shine. Let their uniqueness shine to the fore. Bring it out. Develop it. If they're musically inclined, get them the uh, music teacher to teach them how to play that music so that they can Bring that music to the world. If they're great writers, get them the special program that can teach them how to develop that art, that skill. And if they're great with art 
or photography, or whatever it is that they're gifted with, develop those unique talents. It's okay to be a Torah scholar and also have these talents. I can tell you there are people who are unbelievable Torah scholars and they have their own unique skills. Whether it be art, whether it be, you know, whatever it is, singing, there are many, many great, great Torah scholars who are unbelievable composers. Unbelievable composers. We don't say, oh, just sit and learn Torah only. This is part of Torah, developing yourself, developing the gifts that God gives you. So another thing is that we see that Hashem's world has order. We see every morning in our prayer, we say, God makes a world that has order. God's desire is for there to be order in his world. He created a perfect world. Look at the, if there is one of the constellations, one of the planets that weren't in the right place, this whole world would go crazy. If the sun didn't rise exactly at the right moment and didn't set at the exact moment it needed to. If the moon didn't revolution around the world exactly the way it was supposed to, it would be total chaos. Imagine one morning you wake up and there's no sun. And there's a, get at one of those notifications on your phone that everyone, hold on, humanity, hold on, the sun went for a coffee break. And the sun will be back in three hours. He's just taking just a little break. You know, he's been shining for us for decades and centuries and and, and, and millennia, and now he just needs a break. He just wants a coffee break. Deserving, well-deserved coffee break, right? There would be absolute chaos in the world. The vegetation wouldn't grow. The animals would go haywire. There's a, an order to God's world. God's people also have an order, and when they camp and when they travel, we need to follow that order. God instructs us in his Torah exactly where each tribe was supposed to camp. You're in the north and you're in the south and you're in the east and you're in the west and you're in the inner circle. Everyone had their place. And it's important for us to realize that order and not to break that order in our own life. To And I'm saying this for myself, you know that. I'm punctually challenged. As this class did not start on time, I apologize. But the idea here is that God wants the world to operate with order. And therefore, this is an extra reminder for those of us who are punctually challenged to work on getting that order into our life, getting a structure into our day so that things are in the right place in the right time. Additionally, our sages tell us something so magnificent, is that if you turn over your sheets, you'll see that Yehuda, Yisachar, and Zavulun are on the east near Moshe and Aaron. Who were Moshe and Aaron? They were the scholars. They were the most righteous. They were the holiest people. Why? Moshe went up the mountain. Moshe received the Torah from God directly, transferred it to Aaron and to his sons and to all of the leaders of the tribes and then to all of the people of Israel. But our sages tell us, if you have a good neighbor, you'll be influenced to their goodness. Our sages tell us that Yehuda, 
Yisachar, and Zavulan, those tribes that were next to Moses and Aaron, were the most righteous in Torah study. Why? Because who were their neighbors? Their neighbors were Moses and Aaron and their family. And therefore, they were most influenced by their Torah study. And therefore, they learned more Torah. When we are in an environment, when we are in a community that has Torah study, which is why when I moved to Houston in 2005, we were an organization with four rabbis at Torch. And the first project we embarked on was to open up a full-time kolel. A kolel means a group of rabbis who are dedicated to one cause only, and that is study Torah. Sit in the study hall and study Torah. And there were many people who were detractors, who were saying, no, it's not going to happen. We can't afford it. We can't support it. We can't do it. It's not for our city. We can't be a Torah city without people sitting and studying Torah. And we started a kolel, and a few years later it became into what is today the Lakewood kolel that we have here, and our city is so lucky and so fortunate to have Torah scholars sitting and learning and infusing our city with holiness. Are they going out and doing outreach? No, that's not their job. Just have a place of Torah study. Just have a house of worship that has people sitting and learning to Hashem's Torah that has an impact on every single one of us, whether we know it or not. We're in torch, able to do better outreach because there are people studying Torah. Each one of us are able to relate better to the Torah that Hashem has gifted us with because there are people studying Torah. The entire city becomes holier because of them. They're not meant to go do outreach. Just sit like Moses and Aaron and learn your Torah. It has an effect on your neighbors. It has an effect on your community. It has an effect on your entire city. And when I was right then starting this kolel concept, which wasn't popular, nobody did it. Nobody had just a kolel. You only sent out guys to go do outreach. You didn't have guys sitting and learning alone. I met with the head of the Lakewood Yeshiva, Rabbi Aaron Cutler. And I said to him, I don't understand you. I said, you have six and a half thousand students sitting and learning in the Lakewood Yeshiva. If you sent out 10 to every city, you would change the face of Jewry one city at a time. Send 10 guys out to Washington State, to Seattle, to Portland. You know, go every single major city. Send 10 Torah scholars to just sit and learn. That's it. There'll be plenty of money for it to pay them. You know, Kolo rabbis don't make a fortune. They have a very, very modest salary. Ten rabbis. Go sit. You will change the face of Judaism on the planet Earth. Send ten rabbis to Vegas. Send ten rabbis to Louisiana, to uh, NOLA, to, uh, to New Orleans. Send ten rabbis to every city. It will change the face of Judaism. Why? Because good influences are from good neighbors. And when you have good neighbors, it changes everything. So, what's with all the counting of the Jewish people? You know, the book of Numbers is called Numbers because there are so many times that the Jewish people are counted in this book of Bamidbar. In Hebrew, it's called Bamidbar in the desert, but really it's called the book of Numbers in English. Why? Because Hashem keeps on counting 
is people, just like we count money. Someone has, you know, a few hundred dollars in their pocket. They keep on counting to make sure that they have it because it's really precious. They don't want to lose it. They want to make, did I lose it? Did I lose one? Right? So they count. I have 300. I know I had 300 there. Let me check. Oh, one second. I, let me check again if I have it. Right? Let me check again. Especially children. They're counting it because it's very precious to them. They got this Hanukkah gelt from their grandparents and they want to make sure that they didn't lose it. Hashem's most valuable asset is the Jewish people. Hashem keeps on counting us because he loves us so much. We're so dear to him. He keeps on counting, which is why so many times throughout this book, when the Jewish people are finally past many of our trials and tribulations, Hashem says, okay, now it's time. We're settled, sort of. We have all the camps organized. Now let me count my people. And there's numerous countings of the Jewish people because, number one, we're very, very precious. And number two, Hashem loves us so much. We're so precious to Hashem that he wants to know exactly where we stand, where we are, you know, how many people we're at. Just to clarify, the Jewish people were not counted. Their half shekels were counted. So when we say that there were 603,550 men between the age of 20 and 60, that was how many half shekels were counted. Okay, attributing the half shekels to the people. The same thing with, was with the tribe of Levi and the firstborn. My dear friends, have a remarkable Shabbos. Do yourself a favor. Take a Chumash, take a Torah, any copy of the Torah. I recommend the Stone Edition Chumash or the Schottenstein Interlinear Chumash and just read through the English. Read the commentaries on the bottom. It's your Torah. It's the most beautiful document you will ever read. My dear friends, have an amazing Shabbos.